So, loved ones, let us read responsively Lord's Day 30, beginning with question and answer 80, and then down to 82 as well. How does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ, unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. Who should come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian Church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. And now the scripture passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17 down to 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or, you, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we were judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Loved ones, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May he write it upon our hearts this evening as we consider it. And the the majority of our time, we will consider uh, this passage that we just read. And in it, I aim to show us all the commendable way of communing, the commendable way of celebrating the Lord's Supper. That is the honorable, holy, and biblical way that we should approach the table of the Lord each week. And we'll see that this commendable way is presented here for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But before we get into that, why do we even care? Why do we want to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a commendable way? Why are we spending our Sunday evening to talk about a weekly meal that we have together? What's the big deal with this little piece of bread and and wine that we take together each week? Well, let me remind us of some truths that we hold on to to reorient our mind to what is happening in the Lord's Supper, things that we've already considered the past couple weeks together, why the Lord's Supper is so important. But we aren't here each week for the purpose of maintaining an old-fashioned American tradition. That's not the purpose. We are here each week because in that first century in human history, a Jewish man named Jesus of Nazareth, conquered death by rising bodily from the dead. And that man, Jesus, is our Savior, our King, and our God, in human nature abiding. So we are here each week because of Jesus. We are here because he is our living and reigning King who deserves all our praise and the one who has promised to restore us by his grace. We think about how back on that cursed hill in Israel, Golgotha, King Jesus suffered and died as our substitutionary sacrifice. He died in our place to earn for us a full forgiveness of all our sins once for all. And we have forgiveness now through him. Therefore, there is no need for further sacrifices, which is why, as we read in that first question, question 80 of the Heidelberg Catechism, that the historic Roman Catholic belief that Christ each week is still offered up by their priest for the forgiveness of sins is both wrong and offensive. Rome's view offends the finished work of Christ. As the author of Hebrews says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so we come to remember who Jesus is and that sacrifice that he made, not to repeat that sacrifice. But also, as Pastor Daniel explained for us last week, and if you missed it, go back and listen to that recording. 
Now that same one, that same king, Jesus himself, the one who gave himself over for us as a life-exchanging sacrifice to atone for our sins, is now each week continually giving himself over to us at the table as the life-giving sustenance for our souls to feed us and strengthen our feeble faiths. And so we see that church is not just this old-fashioned social club that we get together each week for. No, it is backwards-looking in the sense we're looking back in history at what Jesus accomplished, and it is forward-looking. It's a forward-looking colony of the kingdom of God, intimately connected to Christ, who is our living head, currently in glory at the right hand of the Father. And so why? Why should we want to celebrate the Lord's Supper? in a commendable way, a praiseworthy way, to honor our crucified Lord, our Savior, and our returning King. That's why. That's why we should care about how we approach all of worship, and especially the table, coming to the table in a manner that is worthy and honorable, commendable. And so that now established, let's consider the passage before us here in 1 Corinthians 11, which is part of a larger section in this letter to the Corinthians on the topic of glorifying God in public worship. Chapter 11, starting in verse 2, all the way to the end of chapter 14, address how we as Christians should come together to offer God worship that is commendable, that honors him, that glorifies him. And the Apostle Paul, he wants the Corinthians and all Christians with them to praise God in a way that is honorable and worth imitating. And at the heart of this passage, or this large section in the letter to the Corinthians, is that beloved chapter, chapter 13, where Paul highlights the gift of love. The gift of love that should be at the center of all that we do, all our worship together love for god and love for one another and this was the very thing that was lacking in the corinthian church as they came together why well they are obsessed with all with all other things but christ himself they're obsessed with higher knowledge they're obsessed and consumed in their minds with the miraculous gifts and eloquent speakers but they did not have true love for one another and that lack of love for one another manifested itself in their gathering together on the lord's day to celebrate the lord's supper and so in our passage chapter 11 verse 17 the apostle paul says that he cannot commend them for the way that they were celebrating the lord's supper now look at verse 20 verse 20 what does he say says that they were so wrong in their practice, the way that they were approaching the table, that it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. It's like, imagine this, uh, by comparison, a Mexican grandmother telling her grandkids that Taco Bell meal that they are eating is not true Mexican food. It's disrespectful to call Taco Bell Mexican food, right? And so too, Paul says... I will not disrespect the Lord by claiming that what you are doing is the Lord's Supper. It's not. Right? You might be sitting down to eat a meal, but it is not the Lord's Supper that you are eating. And so then Paul goes on to explain the specific ways in which their gathering together did more harm than good. And what Paul describes here 
We can think of it like this. It's like this negative image of celebrating the Lord's Supper as he evaluates their own practices. So a negative image in photography, old film photography, is a total inversion of a picture. And if you've seen a negative image, all the light areas appear dark, right? And all the dark areas appear light. Everything is totally inverted. And there in the dark room, the photographer uses the negative image in order to make the positive image that we then print and put upon our walls, right? That's what we're going to do here with this passage. We're going to use this negative image of the Lord's Supper as Paul is evaluating all the wrong practices of the Corinthians. And we're going to turn it to see the positive image in it, to study the, the proper way of communing together in a commendable way. We first have to look at this passage to see their improper way and then invert that and see how Paul is showing us the true, honorable, commendable, praiseworthy way to take and partake together of the Lord's Supper. Be three points. First, the, the, well, the commendable way of celebrating the Lord's Supper is to be done in community, in keeping with Jesus' instructions, and discerning the body of Christ. So those three things. First, the commendable way of celebrating the Lord's Supper is in community. Our communion as we approach the Lord's Supper is commendable when we celebrate our unity and equality in Christ by faith. It is a communal meal because in it we are celebrating our equal share in Christ. And look at the passage together with me, beginning in verse 18 to 19. Paul, he's rebuking them. He's challenging them for these divisions that existed among them. And this saddened Paul. He was sad about this. Look at the end of verse 18. Paul reveals that it's hard for him to accept this report that he has heard about their divisions. He had invested so much personally in the Corinthians, discipling them in the gospel. They were his spiritual children. And so it's hard for him to believe this bad report. He, it seems that he's here in a bit of denial You can almost hear his reluctancy when he says of the alleged divisions among them. He says, to some extent, I believe it. To some extent, I believe it. It's like he's saying, I don't want to believe all of it. I don't want to hear all. I don't want to believe all of the bad reports that I've heard. But I suppose that some of them are true, that there are divisions among you. But then Paul seems to find a silver lining in verse 19, where he argues that some of the fractions in the church have the effect of revealing who is a genuine believer approved by God. And what that means practically is that when professing Christians mistreat or disparage other Christians on non-essential matters of the faith, they reveal that they have no part with Jesus. You can't pull away from God's people and expect to be drawing near to God. And John, the Apostle John, makes the same point in 1 John 4.20, saying, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. So why were these divisions among the Christians at Corinth as they approached the Lord's Supper especially egregious, especially grievous to Paul and to the Lord? Because Jesus died for one of these purposes, this purpose of uniting his people together. And the Lord's Supper is all about our shared equality in Christ. 
It is like this royal meal that King Jesus sets up. Think of a, a, a castle in a sense. The king invites us into his castle. There's this big table and he invites each and every person in his kingdom to come. Every believer. Why? For the purpose of uniting us more to him, our king, and uniting us more and more to one another. But instead of leaning into the Lord's Supper to celebrate their unity and their equality that they have in Christ, what were the Corinthians doing? The exact opposite. To use the lingo of the day they are, uh, of today, they were throwing shade on those who have little faith. Sorry, those who have little money in the world, little material possessions. Not those who had little faith, but those who have little material possessions. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, they totally inverted the purpose of the meal. Instead, they were indulging in lots of food and lots of wine as consumeristic individuals instead of as a community equally dependent upon Christ together. And we can kind of picture how this was happening, uh, speculate based on the evidence that we have in this passage here, that as they gathered together in their homes, uh, they didn't have big buildings at this point where they gathered together on the Lord's Day. So they're in these homes in Corinth, gathered together on Sunday, and perhaps there in the middle of the room, they had tables where the rich sat down to feast with lots of food, filling their bellies and even getting drunk, Paul says. All the while, where were the poor among them? They were forced to be watching wallflowers as their stomachs growled with hunger, watching the rich eat the Lord's Supper, which Paul says it is not the Lord's Supper, what you're eating. So how could such malpractice happen? How could they fall into this? Well, it's actually quite a simple answer, I think. They were just carrying over the ways of the world into the ways of the church because that's exactly how the world operates right but as christians we are not of the world as we heard this morning god has created us with recreated in us clean hearts he has made us into new creatures and we belong to god's kingdom and we are not of this world as jesus says and that's why paul here is so upset with them he says that their so-called celebration of the lord's supper was humiliating the poor among them how so well by the way they were practicing it the division that existed among them as they practiced it it made the poor feel like they were second class citizens in the kingdom of god and this brought shame upon the whole church of god just imagine how this would be so shameful imagine a person walking in off the streets of corinth who was new to Christianity, new to the Christian movement. And they walk in and they see them feasting on any given Sunday. And what would they have thought about the Christian community at Corinth? Ah, well, these people are no different than the world. In the world, we see people divided all the time, separated into groups based on socioeconomic and ethnic differences. And we see this even today as well. Middle class people, Many of us here, we tend to live in middle-class communities and eat at middle-class restaurants. And middle-class people don't typically associate with or eat with the really rich in the world or the really poor in the world. In the world, we all tend to kind of habitat or stay within the habitat of our own socioeconomic bubble. And even though in the United States, which is a big melting pot of cultures, 
even though that exists today, the world is still and always will be a very divided place because in sin we like to divide and separate from one another into groups. But Paul says that when those divisive lines are drawn and carried and cut into the church and make its way into our worship, we are despising the church of God and we are shaming our brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because by faith, by faith alone, we are all equal shareholders in Christ and the kingdom of God by faith. So one of the main points of the Lord's Supper is to celebrate that unity and that equality that we have in Christ. It is a communal meal meant to promote our unity together, not divide us into the haves and the have-nots. The point of the meal of the Lord's Supper is to show us that we all have an equal share in Christ's body and blood for the full forgiveness of all our sins. By faith, we are all the haves in the kingdom of God. And that is a glorious truth. We are all those who have Christ and through him, we equally have one another as brothers and sisters in the family of God. And this is why the Lord's Supper is not about satisfying our bellies. It's not like every other meal that we have, morning, midday, and evening. It is set apart for a different holy purpose and use. Paul says in verse 22, look at verse 22, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? In other words, unlike other meals, the Lord's Supper is not meant for consumption. It's not meant for filling your bellies. It's meant for community in Christ and building up and fostering that community that we have in him. Now, as this relates to us, we don't have exactly the same problems that the Corinthians had. But we do have to admit that as Americans, we are in a culture that is very individualistic and also consumeristic. And as individuals and consumers, well, we have to approach this text and let it evaluate us and challenge us. We need to hear this, too. We need to remember that God does not set a standard of clothing for those who are to come to the table of the Lord. He does not have basic requirements of success to sit at his table. There is no meritocracy in that sense. There is not even a pin drop of partiality or favoritism in God. Not even a tiny bit. He serves both rich and poor equally at the Lord's table. And it's a glorious thing that we should celebrate each week together the Lord's table is a table reserved not for the social elites or the noble class with the higher education. This is the table where, like God, there is no favoritism, no partiality. All are equally invited, all who come by faith. As Paul says to the Colossians, here in the kingdom of God, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. All those divisions are gone. In the kingdom of God. But Christ is all and is in all. So we are all equal at the foot of the cross. And therefore we must equally go to the table together to share in Christ as well. Who then should come to the table? Who gets an invitation? Well, all, all kinds of people from all over the world in this divided world. All are are invited in. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, all are invited who have godly sorrow for their sins 
yet trust in Jesus that all their sins are forgiven and desire more and more to lead a better life. In a sense, uh, all who follow that same pattern that we saw from Psalm 51, who, who acknowledge their sins, appeal for God's mercy and grace for the forgiveness of sins, and then seek in gratitude to adore him, to bring adoration to God in their whole life, to try and lead a better life by grace. Now, the commendable way, therefore, to commune together in celebration of the Lord's Supper is in community. And by doing so, what do we show the world? We show the world our unity that we have by the Spirit. We are all honored to have a share in Christ, not because of the merits that we have earned in this world, but rather because of the merits that Jesus gives us freely, that we receive by faith in him alone. And so we must celebrate the Lord's Supper in community with one another. The second point, commendable communion must be in keeping with Jesus' instructions. And we see that in verses 23 to 26, where Paul reminds them of the instructions for the supper that Jesus first gave to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. And here we find a formulaic tradition that Paul says, I receive this. And I passed it on to you. These instructions are not just suggestions on how we maybe might celebrate the Lord's Supper. No, these were prescribed by the Lord Jesus himself for us to keep. As with the baptismal formula, right, when Jesus instituted uh, baptism, there was a formula attached to it in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We don't have the liberty or freedom to change that up according to how we want. Likewise, we don't have the liberty to change up this formula, these instructions that Jesus has given us. So Jesus intended the church throughout the ages to remember and repeat these words of institution each and every time that we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And have you ever noticed that as we celebrate the Supper, as uh, one of the ministers reads through that form, that is, in a sense, a reenactment of the Last Supper. The minister is repeating the very words of Jesus, his declaration saying, this is my body, which is for you. And also this cup is the new covenant in my blood for you. It's as if we're transported back to that sacred evening before his crucifixion, and we are hearing the words of Jesus, not just for those early disciples, but also personally for us as well. His word is living and active, and he still speaks to us today through his preached word and also through the sacraments as well. And through these carefully chosen words, Jesus is reminding us each week that he is both the host and the meal. He is the host that has invited us to his dinner party, so to speak, and he is the meal itself that he is serving to us to feed upon him that we might be strengthened in our faith his body his blood but notice that jesus tells us to do this in remembrance of him why the meal is not just about getting benefits from jesus Uh, we that would be a, a terrible thing just to go to jesus to get some benefits from him no no the meal of the lord's supper is about getting jesus himself about getting jesus himself These simple words of institution remind us that Jesus is the host and the meal. And as often as we celebrate it together, we are proclaiming his death until he 
returns. In other words, we announce his victory for us in the past and we anticipate his glorious return in the future together. And therefore, in addition to celebrating in community, the commendable way of communing together is also in keeping with the instructions that Jesus gave us. Now, thirdly, our communion is commendable when we discern the body of Christ by faith. In verse 27, look at the passage, Paul says, it is possible to eat the bread and the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Unworthily. The adverb is used there in the original. And so to do so makes one guilty, Paul says, guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. This is a serious thing. And here let us remember that none of us, none of us is truly worthy in and of ourselves to eat of the Lord's table. None of us is worthy. We seek to come in a worthy manner, but none of us is ultimately worthy in and of ourselves. And we heard that again this morning from Psalm 51. Each and every one of us were born in sin and conceived in iniquity. And in a striking scene from the gospel accounts, once Jesus told a Gentile woman who came to him asking for a miracle, asking for help, he said to her, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. That's a striking statement from Jesus that sounds at first very harsh. But it is true, and we need to remember this as well. We need to remember who we are apart, or who we were apart from Jesus. We, many and most of us here, I imagine, are non-Jewish outsiders to the covenant of God. We are the Gentiles who were the dogs that Jesus refers to. Our ancestors, each and every one of us here, probably our ancestors were godless pagans outside of that covenant of God's grace. Even if you have here tonight generations of faithfulness in your own family, still, if you go far enough back, you will see that this applies to you too. In your family tree, hundreds or thousands of years ago, your ancestors were pagans that worshipped false gods with animal sacrifices and did all kinds of immoral things. What does that mean? It means that it is not ultimately right for any of us to have a seat at God's table. We are all unworthy. And Paul reminds us of this back in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says this to a largely Gentile congregation. He says, Remember that formerly you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, that is the Jewish people and the Gentiles, one, and has destroyed their barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside the wall in his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. Now, how does this relate to the Lord's Supper? Well, even though we are ourselves unworthy to eat of it, to eat of the bread of life, we remember that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came for the unworthy, not those who thought they were worthy, not those who thought they were righteous already, but for the unrighteous, the sinners, 
The Son of God became a true man, obeyed God's law perfectly, and died on the cross in order to give unworthy sinners the right to sit and eat at God's table in his kingdom. We who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And now all of us who receive the Lord's Supper by faith, we have the right to eat of that bread of life because Jesus paid the price for our ransom to set us free and make us into the children of God. Our right to the Lord's table is not found in us, but found solely in Christ himself. And that's why each week as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we pray, and you've heard this, I'm sure we pray this, although we are unworthy to share this meal with you, it is by your invitation and dressed in Christ's righteousness like robes that he has given us, his perfect obedience. It is by his invitation and dressed in Christ's righteousness that we have come boldly into the Holy of Holies. And so we can think again of that encounter that Jesus had with the Gentile woman who was asking for help. And we see in that story that she persisted with him. She acknowledged her unworthiness. She says, yes, Lord, it's true. I'm unworthy to eat at this table. And yet she persisted saying, Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And when Jesus heard that, he said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. So even though she had no right to eat of the bread of life, Jesus freely answered her request on what? On the basis of what? Her faith in him. Faith in him. And that was an early indication there in the gospel accounts of the Gentile inclusion into God's covenant people. That Jesus, with the Father and the Spirit, had the plan of inviting whosoever repents and believes in him, regardless of socioeconomic or ethnic backgrounds. All are welcome by faith into the covenant of grace. All kinds of people are now included into the body of Christ. And so, going back to Ephesians 2, Paul adds this. He says, Jesus' purpose in coming and in dying was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we have both access to the Father by one spirit. So we see that Jesus sacrificed himself, body and soul, on the cross in order to make one new united people of God, the church. The church is called the body of Christ, and he alone is our living head, he who rules from heaven. And so keep that in mind as we go back once more to 1 Corinthians 11. The human body of Jesus was given over in death for this purpose. To create a new united spiritual body of Christ, that is, the church. You see his physical body and the spiritual body coming together. In verse 28 to 29, he says this. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning what? The body of Christ. Eat and drink judgment on themselves. So according to the Apostle Paul here. This is the unworthy manner in which, or this is the worthy manner, rather, that we should receive the Lord's Supper. What is the worthy manner in which we should receive the Lord's Supper? We must discern the body of Christ. Which body? That's the big question. Which body? 
Is it A, is it A, the church is the body of Christ? Is that what he's referring to? Or is it B, the crucified body of Jesus Christ? Which one is it? It's a trick question. (laughs) It's both. It's both. That's right. It's both A and B. And we see that in the context. In the context, we hear about, right, remember the divisions that existed in Corinth and their individualistic approach that they had. And so Paul is calling them to recognize and see and discern the whole body to which they belong as believers, to discern the church as the body of Christ here on earth. And so as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we must pay careful attention to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must consider by faith our unity and equality as co-citizens and equal shareholders in the kingdom of God. At the table of the Lord, the identity markers that exist in the world come crashing down and we are united together as one. All other divisive lines are erased and ignored and we are found in Christ by faith. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we should discern by faith how God has united us into one body by faith in Jesus. Practically, what does this mean? How can we do this better? Well, I think that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we should probably not be looking down with our eyes closed, not treating it simply as an individualistic thing that we're taking in for ourselves, but instead look out. Look around you to your brothers and sisters that are there celebrating with you, that are all going to the table to receive all from the same bread and the same wine. Think of our unity that we have together that God has forged with the blood of Christ and by his spirit. And not only think of that, but also pray that God would continue to reunite us more with Christ, our head, and more with each other, the members of his body here on earth. And so, too, also, we should discern not only the body of Christ here on earth, but also the body of Christ in glory, his crucified and risen body. And that comes out also in the context as well of this passage, because Paul says that when someone partakes of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, what are they sinning against? They're sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Therefore, we should pay close attention as well as we approach the Lord's Supper to the promise that we considered last week with Pastor Daniel that through the Lord's Supper, God is giving us a mysterious communion or participation in the body and blood of Jesus, even as we ingest the bread and the wine by faith in God's promises. We have a real communion with Christ, our living head. And so we've seen then that the commendable communion discerns the body of Christ. Which body? Well, the body, his church here on earth, and also his crucified body currently at the right hand of the Father. To conclude, why then should we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a commendable way? To honor our crucified Savior, our risen Lord, and our returning King. That's why. That's why we're talking about this tonight. He's coming back and we want to honor him. We want to glorify him. How do we do that? How do we come to the table in a commendable way? Well, when we do it in community, united by faith as equal shareholders in the kingdom of God. When we do it in a way that is keeping with the instructions of Jesus himself to be served by Jesus as the host and the meal. And when we do it discerning the body of Christ, the church and the crucified body of our Lord 
the right hand of the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time to consider this passage and this weighty uh, reality that you have presented to us and that you give us each week as we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, We praise you for the wonderful gift that you have given us by sending your Son to die for our sins once for all. And not only that, but through the Lord's Supper, by the mysterious operation of the Spirit, you give us Christ again for us to sustain us spiritually through our life lord we ask that uh, this word would sink down into our hearts that we might each week come to your table in a way that is commendable that is honorable and praiseworthy and that glorifies you we ask this in jesus name amen